Let me invite you now to uh, open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Today we are in chapter 1, and we are looking at verses 12 through 26. And today we will be looking at a passage that's very easy to just read over and sort of accept it as a good historical record without really seeing how it fits in the overall flow of the book of Acts and the history of the early church. You have to ask yourself the question, why would Luke, the historian that he is, take time to select the material he includes in these verses, which, you know, we've been having some big, exciting stuff going on in the book of Acts. We've got mention of the resurrection. We have uh, the ascension right before their eyes. And now he begins to talk about what the, uh, the disciples and the apostles were doing for the 10 days in between the ascension and Pentecost. And so we got Pentecost coming up. That's a big show. That is an amazing redemptive historical event. We've just witnessed the ascension. But sandwiched between that is our text today, and I want us to take time to look at it because I think it's critical in the nature of uh, Luke's thought. Hear now the word of the Lord, Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, in a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas, not Iscariot, but Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, uh, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand, by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own lang language Akeldama, which is field, of blood, or a keldama would be better said. A keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. 
And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know, all, know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, and we thank you that your word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and is able to cut between the joints and the marrow, and is a critic of the thoughts and motivations and intents of our heart. We pray that your word would work among us today as we consider what is before us in this glorious book of Acts. And may we see in it uh, the gospel of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom that has come, and the kingdom that will one day consummate. And so we thank you for this record, and we pray it would speak to us in the deepest ways. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're asking the question, why does Luke talk about these things before the Pentecostal events? And we've talked about the great redemptive historical events that have happened in recent days. I mean, this period is over a period of seven weeks. Uh, a lot of stuff is going on. And so why does he include verses 12 to 26, that 10-day waiting period? And what we see here is that the disciples and the apostles as well were not idle. As they wait, they pray, and they're unified. They act to replace Judas among the twelve. And so uh, this was sort of a symbolic way of saying that Jesus was leading a reconstitution of Israel and restructuring the apostles. And this is highly significant in the plan of God because what happens in these verses is the fulfillment of Scripture. One of the major themes in Luke's gospel as well as his second volume, Acts, is the principle or idea of fulfillment. And so we're going to see that as we look. Now, they had witnessed the ascension. They were on the Mount of Olives near Bethany and a Sabbath day's journey away from where they were going in Jerusalem. And so they went upstairs to an upper room. And this must have been a room that belonged to a wealthy person because it had to be a large room that would be able to facilitate at least 120 people. Some people think this may have been the same room that the Last Supper was observed in. We're not sure about that. No way we can prove it either way. Others think it was the room in which Jesus made some post-resurrection appearances. But the names of the apostles are repeated without, of course, Judas Iscariot. He is omitted. And uh, so they are chosen uh, disciples or apostles. If you look up in verse uh, 2, until the day... When he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. These were his chosen apostles. And they had been designated that they have a particular mandate from Jesus to fulfill. 
And so they're beginning that preparation. There are only 11, and so the preparation would be selection of number 12 because Judas was omitted. And so who else was there? Who was there with them? Well, the text tells us that the women were there. And one thing we all know as we look at the resurrection appearances, as we look at the whole of the Gospels, Jesus elevated the status of women uh, everywhere he went. Um, Jesus lifted them up. Uh, he dignified women. In the first century, of course, a very patriarchal culture. People think it's patriarchal now. Can't even compare. If you go back and study the nature of the uh, patriarchal culture in the first century, you can see that Jesus has taken a quantum leap in restoring and bringing about the elevated status and dignity of women. And so the women are there, probably the ones that witnessed the empty tomb. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there, and his brothers are there. Now, uh, some of our Catholic friends believe that uh, Joseph and Mary had no children. They believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary. But uh, you can't read the Gospels, especially in Mark chapter 7 and other places, without seeing that Jesus had at least three or four brothers. We do know that James himself was the half-brother of Jesus. That's how They're called uterine brothers. And so his brothers were there supporting him. The women had supported him with some of their personal income. They were first to witness the resurrection. And so Jesus' mother, Mary, is presented here as a model of trust and submission to God's will. But understand this and hear this. This is the last time Mary is mentioned in the New Testament. And so this is the last note to her. And Jesus' brothers were known as being uh, um, skeptical toward their brother's ministry. They, uh, they resisted it. They were skeptics. And perhaps Jesus' post-resurrection appearance to James was responsible for the conversion of Joseph, Judas, and Simon. We do know that James later became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, what were they doing? Well, the text is very clear about what they were doing. They were together. They were devoted to prayer, constantly in prayer. And it's quite emphatic in the original language. In Greek, they were devoted to prayer, and they did so together as a fellowship of like-minded believers. Now, maybe some of you are wondering, what can I do, do during COVID-19? Well, there's one thing you can most certainly do, and that is pray. Be devoted to prayer. And prayer is not nothing. It's not glamorous, but it's not nothing. As a matter of fact, it is so key that this is what they were doing over those 10 days. They were doing two things. They were praying, and they were going to the temple and praising God. So these people were worshiping and they were praying, and they were devoted to it, which meant they persevered in it. Now, if you've ever watched a great athlete, some people are naturally gifted as athletes, but to be above uh, average, to be top in your field, 
you have to devote yourself to your craft. Same thing true with musicians. Same thing true with even preachers. You have to devote yourself to the craft because natural talent will only take you so far. And so when I see a great tennis player who has an amazing stroke, I look at that person and realize they spent hours upon hours. I guess the people I feel most compassion for are the people who were preparing for the Olympics coming up. These people have been devoted to their particular sport. And so in the same way, these people were devoted. They were into it. They were praying and they were like-minded. They were of one accord and prayer does that. Prayer takes a disparate group and brings them together because everybody's equal on their knees before God. That is equally sinful and equally not that great. <laughs> and so the focus of their praying was what, uh, what they had heard and what they had seen. And so when you find yourself in a period of waiting, and that's what the disciples are doing, they are waiting in Jerusalem for the big event to come the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon God's people and the new covenant expression of the church was coming. And so they were praying and praying and praising and praising and they were together and they stayed continually together. It is striking as you look at the book of Acts that every major turning point in the book of Acts seems to be the result of Community coming together and praying and worshiping. Now, sometimes there's nothing more you can do in the moment than wait. I don't like waiting. <laughs> waiting is the worst four-letter word in English to me. I'm one of the, I hate to be this guy, but sometimes I can be this guy. I will go in a store, and you know which one I'm talking about, that has like 40 cash registers ready to check you out and they have two open. And the two are open and the line is like halfway down through the back of the store. And I get upset by that and I've even gone so far, I don't even think I've told my wife this, but I've gone so far to ask for the manager, go up and say, look, <laughs> look, you got two lines going out the back of the store, you got two cash registers open. Open some cash registers, please. Can't you see that? Now, you say, you're a terrible sinner. Well, I know that already. I mean, you're not helping me there. But uh, don't like to wait. But here's something any and all can do. Prayer is mentioned 31 times in the book of Acts. In the 28 chapters, 20 of them have prayer in them. And so something that any and all of us can do, even in isolation, even in our a shelter in place, is we can pray. What an opportune moment to be the church in the world right now. What a great opportunity we have to begin to pray that God would bring spiritual renewal in the earth. I would use the term revival, except people think sometimes what you mean by revival is what revivalism is. And I'm against revivalism, which is manipulative and emotional and uh, theologically vacuous usually, but I am in favor of spiritual renewal. That is when God begins to intensify the operations of the Holy Spirit upon his church in a particular place, in a particular time, and two things happen. People become profoundly and life-changingly 
uh, smitten by their own sin. They see their sin, and the Holy Spirit seems to show Jesus in a rather remarkable way. And so the byproduct of that is the church begins to come together as the church. Conversions happen, and... uh, Amazing things have occurred. If you study the history of revivals in the church, you can see, of course, some abuses, but you can also see some glorious things that have happened. I believe it was Matthew Henry who said this, When God intends great mercy for his people, the first thing he does is set them to praying. Let me ask you something. Are you praying? Are you praying? You have time. You have opportunity. Are you praying that God would pour out His Spirit upon His people as in the day of Pentecost? Now, Pentecost itself is not a repeatable event, yet the spiritual renewal that comes from the intensified operations of the Holy Spirit still occurs. And so God demonstrates His power as people come together to pray. Now, the second thing they did, we see in the book of Acts, is that they had to deal with Judas's fallout. In other words, something had happened and everybody in Jerusalem knew about it. Everybody knew that Judas Iscariot was an apostle from the beginning. He was in the office, so to speak. He was treasurer of the group. He was probably, my guess would be, the most striking of all of them in many ways. Probably the most talented, probably the smartest of all of them. He looked like a choice person. Uh, Not all of them looked that way, but probably Judas was recognized as somebody who had a lot of potential, somebody who was on his way in the uh, apostolate. And so... Something had happened to Judas. As we all know, Judas sold Jesus off for 30 pieces of silver. He betrayed them. He led uh, the Roman soldiers to where Jesus was in order for Jesus to be arrested. He was uh, wicked in that way. And Peter speaks of his wickedness. But why does Peter stand up to the group and begin to talk about dealing with Judas? I think, and I've thought about this a long time, I think that what he's doing is a form of church discipline. Rather than sweeping Judas under the rug, rather than hoping nobody else would talk about it, rather than trying to cover it up, as most people do, he lances the boil, so to speak, right here. He is upfront. He is candid about Judas. And so, he talks about it. And we see it in the text in Acts chapter 1. What does he say? He says this. He stood up and he spoke to them. The scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And then a parenthetical remark where Luke adds, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. 
And then he quotes two verses, one from Psalm 69 and one from Psalm 109, and said, Judas, these verses are being fulfilled. And so he speaks about the Judas betrayal and the fallout from it, and he deals with it openly. Because surely the people in Jerusalem that day were um, witnesses of that betrayal. And so he, he begins to move toward the completion of the uh, apostles. And so he talks about the apostles and what he's doing here. And I believe what this section does more than anything else is that it is an apologetic to restore the leadership integrity of the twelve. It is an apologetic to restore the leadership integrity of the twelve. Because he goes on and talks about the qualifications of the disciples, I mean the apostles. Acts 1 and 2 is an apologetic narrative in which Luke seeks to promote the leadership integrity of the apostles. And this, this segment is at the heart of the approach. So there are four ways readers are assured in verses 15 through 26. First, the language, necessity, is used in the beginning and end of Peter's speech. Second, the betrayal of Jesus is shown to have been the tragic fulfillment of Scripture, meaning that Jesus was not mistaken or caught off guard. Couldn't you hear people talking in Jerusalem? How could he pick somebody that would betray him? Tell me how he can be the Messiah and select the one that undoes him. You know, and, I, and I'm sure the credibility of this group was at an all-time low. If they had polls in those days, that would have been at an all-time low. And so this is a crucial point in the transition of salvation history that the circle of the twelve as representatives of the new Israel was restored. That's why he took time to do it because he's signaling to us that these twelve need to be restored because it is a pivotal moment in the history of redemption because we're going to see these twelve reconstituted as the new Israel. The new Israel, which is far more encompassing than just national, ethnic, kingdom, physical, geographic Israel. It is an international people. A church from every tribe, kindred, and tongue will come together. And we'll see that on the day of Pentecost. The fact that the circle of the twelve was complete at Pentecost was a confirmation of Jesus' prophetic and messianic status and increased the credibility of his promise and the future role of the twelve as the leaders of the new Israel. Matthias was not chosen because Judas had died, but because he had become apostate. And so as we look at the fate of Jesus, uh, Judas, so to speak, it's interesting how uh, <clears throat> he talks about this. And so, um, Matthew's gospel treats it a little bit different. It says Judas went out and hanged himself. And then here it says um, he fell headlong and his, uh, he burst open and all his uh, bowels fell out, which meant internal organs. Now, can both of those be true at the same time? And the answer is yes. Easily a person can become 
can be hanging or hanging themselves. And while hanging there over a period of time, they would bloat up and eventually their internal organs would rupture and come out. It happened frequently. It was not an unusual occurrence. And so there's no real contradiction between what Matthew says and what Peter says here uh, prior to the day of Pentecost. But the interesting thing is, where does Peter come off? (laughs) Uh, I mean, I'm a student of the New Testament. I've studied hermeneutics for years. That is the science of interpretation. There are rules. How does Peter go back to a couple of somewhat obscure psalms, pull this scripture out, and apply it to Judas. How does he do that? And there are a lot of people in the field of New Testament studies who look at this and go, I can't believe the way some of these apostles use the Old Testament. How does he do that? Well, you think Peter was privy to the discussion Jesus had with the two on the road to Emmaus? Do you think that training period of 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he didn't get a course in biblical theology of how Christ is the fulfillment not only of the Torah, not only of the uh, Nabiim, which is the prophets, Torah, the law, but also the Ketavim, in Hebrew, the writings, the poetry. And so surely, as Jesus took the Bible, he certainly would have mentioned David. David is a major character. As a matter of fact, Christ is the fulfillment of the hope of a Davidite to occupy the throne. And surely, he would have told Peter ways in which David was a type of which he is the antitype. And so, or which he is the fulfillment. And so surely the discussion of how Jesus is fulfilling all tells us that there was a fulfillment at the time of David, but an even greater fulfillment at the coming of Christ. And so these verses which apply to Judas, he applies them to Judas in a perfectly sound way, seeing Scripture as fulfilled in the person of Christ. Scripture is Christ-centered. I remember when I first preached, you know, uh, as a young preacher who scares me now to realize how little I knew or understood, and I'm sure in 10 years I will be scared that I'm up here talking now. But, But I can remember studying, and I remember preaching the Old Testament, and all I knew to do with it was sort of psychologize it. Uh, And I would preach on things like David and Goliath and just see it as how do we deal with the Goliaths in our life. And so I would make the text about me and how I took the principles out of uh, the book of First and Second Samuel and applied them to my life by how I would fight intimidating giants who I was afraid of in my life. The only problem with this is all about me. It was all about me. And when I began then to understand that David and Goliath is really about Christ, that David is a type of Christ destroying our enemies in his cross, triumphing over them, then I began to see, and this is where we so miss it so often, is the focus of our lives are on us and what we do. Us and what we do. And never on Jesus and what he did. And this is why Luke is going to such extremes in this passage to bring back the integrity and the credibility 
of the twelve, even though one of them had defected, apostatized, and rejected Jesus and sold him. Why is he working so hard here under the inspiration of Scripture, seeing Scripture fulfilled in what Judas did, that Jesus was ordained beforehand to be the one that would betray Jesus, while at the same time being totally responsible and accountable and culpable for what he did. And so how, why would he go to that length to describe all this? He's trying to restore the credibility. Why? Because the apostles are the foundation of the church. Ephesians tells us that. Look in the front of your bulletin when you have time and read that quote. What's he doing? Since Christianity is based not on what, how we live, but rather how Jesus lived, and based upon the authenticity of the historical redemptive events he accomplished for us, then we needed some sort of guarantor to make sure that these events happened. We needed eyewitnesses. We needed verification of people who had been selected by God. And so, the, you know, I've, I've read people and heard people say, oh, it was a big mistake, big mistake for the disciples here to run ahead of the game and select Matthias because the 12th apostle would have really been the apostle Paul. No, I don't think so. Redemptive historically, we needed 12. This needed to happen. This credibility needed to be restored so that people would begin to understand that this is what Christianity is all about. It's built upon the foundation of the apostles. We don't have any apostles today. Not in the sense of what this chapter talks about. You had to be with Jesus from John the Baptist on. You had to witness the resurrection. You had to see his life. And so those were the uh, qualifications, but the reason why we needed qualifications for the apostles is because the weight they carry. In other words, if what they say about Jesus is untrue, if they have no credibility, then why believe any of it? Paul even goes on to say if the resurrection is not true, we're the most miserable of all people. Why? Because we're saved by what Jesus did in those historical events. We're not saved by applying to ourselves principles that we see in the Bible and try to live them out. We do try to live out our faith after we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. We look at him. It's him. It's him. That's where we look. And so he's going to great lengths in this passage to reconstitute the twelve. And so when I say that we have no apostles in the sense of this, um, there are none living today that could have fulfilled those qualifications. I know people call themselves apostles. And I know that later on, even in the New Testament, Barnabas is referred to as an apostle, but that might be used in terms of his being a missionary, one sent. And so the whole point of this passage is really for apologetic purposes, to establish us in the faith that when the apostles write the New Testament scriptures, they are doing so as people in office approved and chosen by Christ, and are eyewitnesses about what they're writing about, which gives us what? Security and grounding in what we believe. Well, there's more going on here. And I will address a little bit more of it before we're done. Um, 
I've addressed the whole field of blood issue, the 30 pieces of silver, his body bursting open, his intestines were spilled out, um, and I see that uh, Jesus' teaching regarding the plan of salvation in the Old Testament is fulfillment, and that's how Peter applies these two psalms to the life of Judas. But let's get down then to the choice of Matthias. By the way, really, when you think about it, which apostles do you hear about from here on? You hear about Peter, you hear about John, and you hear about James. But you don't hear much about the others. Do we ever hear about Matthias again? No, we don't. We don't hear another word about him. We do know from tradition that more than likely he went to Ethiopia and there he preached the gospel, established a church, and was martyred. That's what tradition teaches. We don't know for sure what happened to Matthias. But the point is, in this time and space, Jesus is doing far more than what it looks like on the, sur uh, the uh, surface. Pentecost it cannot, will not happen until these matters are accomplished. And so... In his parenthetical remark, Luke explains the end of Judas. I've told you already that the road to Emmaus probably was foundational to Peter's message, but they decide to choose Messiahs, uh, Matthias. And so they wanted to make up the twelve. It was related to the fact that Jesus intended them to be leaders of a restored Israel. That's in Luke 22, 14 to 30. They could not be Messiah's witnesses unless they represented in their number the ideal of a reunited, renewed people of God. Israel in its fullness, not a remnant. And once the Spirit had been bestowed and the twelve had been definitively constituted, at the heart of this renewed Israel, there was no need to replace them when they died because they had... They had served their foundational purposes. So choosing a twelfth apostle at this time implied the acceptance of Jesus' commission to be his witnesses in the new situation after his death, resurrection, and ascension. And so therefore, for the scriptures to be fulfilled, uh, you know, people often ask, what do you think happened to Judas? Well, the text here says he went to his own place. I got news for you, that's not a good not a good comment. For Judas goes to his own place means he didn't go where? To the Lord's place. And so more than likely, from all I can discern from Scripture, he perished. That, uh, to put it bluntly, he went to hell uh, because of his own actions and his refusal to ever repent and return. And so the twelve had a particular advantage and could be guarantors of the whole gospel tradition. Their witness to the resurrection could be set within the framework of their wider experience of Jesus' ministry with its teaching about the purpose of his death and the subsequent exaltation, that is the ascension. Putting it another way, they could guarantee that it was the same Jesus who had led his disciples during his three-year ministry that now led their, her, his church as her exalted Lord. And so, 
They put forward names, and this was probably the 120, somehow came up with names of two guys, and they casted lots. Now, I did a little research on what casting lots are. It comes from the Old Testament stones that were used in the tabernacle by the priest and in the temple called the Urim and the Thummim. But this was probably writing the name of um, Matthias on one. And what's the other guy's name? Just seeing if you're listening. <laughs> Justice would be the uh, Roman name. Yeah, Joseph called Barsabbas, which is son of Sabbath, really, is what, it, what that means. And so he wrote each name on two stones, put them in a bag, shook them up, poured them out, and the first one out was the winner. And we go, that seems kind of bogus. I mean, what is the New Testament here? Sanctifying gambling here? No, it's not. They cast lots. Because the book of Proverbs says what? You cast lots, but the whole disposing is what? Of the Lord. There are numbers of instances under the Old Covenant where this was used to discern and figure out what God's will was. And they did the same thing here because get this, understand this. The Spirit had not yet come in His fullness on the day of Pentecost. They were still operating as were the Old Covenant believers. And so at this point, this is how they discerned the Lord's will. That would change after the day of Pentecost. But this is what they did, did, and God is certainly able to ascertain which individual he's choosing, and that's how they did it. And so Matthias was established as the 12th apostle. But understand the whole purpose for it. And the whole purpose for it, as I've said earlier, is to reconstitute Israel as the new Israel who would fulfill God's purposes in this way. I'm pretty sure that's most everything I wanted to say. I would say, does anybody have any questions? But you don't get to do that. <laughs> but this is a passage that for me, I mean, I've, I've had time to really sink my teeth in on it. I never really understood that that's what was going on here, that this is what Jesus is doing. It's like before you launch Pentecost, there's certain details that had to be taken care of. And of course, one of them was Judas and what he had done to the reputation of the apostles by his actions. And what I like about it is that Peter addressed it head on. He didn't try to cover it up. He didn't try to blame it on anyone else. He dealt with it exactly the way we deal with any church discipline issue. So in summation, Acts chapter 1 verses 20, 12 to 26 covers the obedience of the church as its members wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit. There they pray. There they come together. There they form, as it were, the nucleus of the New Covenant Church. And what an exciting time to be in. And what an exciting time, as I said earlier, to be the church now. Can't we begin to pray earnestly that God would accomplish a great movement of the Spirit 
among us today, for we certainly all, you know, people always say pray for revival so that their particular political candidate will win. No, we're not looking for that. What we're looking for is judgment begins at the house of the Lord. That's when we go to prayer. We repent of our sins. Uh, not so much the sins of the culture, but our own sins. And God sends a powerful movement of His Spirit. So here's a picture of active community life. And this is what I'm missing because of this live streaming stuff, is active community life. Um, to say that I miss those of you who are not able to be here is an understatement. I do. It's sort of a... I was telling Pam as we were praying on the way in, I looked at her and I said, this is strange, this is odd, this is weird, this is eerie. You know, I was practicing preaching. I was trying to come up with every <laughs> adjective I could to describe what it feels like not to be with the people of God. Where I'm with some of the people of God, and I'm enjoying that. But not to be with the church. And that's, uh, that's a challenge. But what do we do? We pray, we pray, and we pray, and we anticipate God's work as we eventually, by His grace, will come back together. We are a community who walks with God. We're a community, as, as this community does, who understands Judas's death to be a judgment from God and yet part of the divine plan. Peter leads by pointing to the... Uh, community to scripture and the community shares in the deliberations appealing to God to select one who has the heart for ministry with the 12 restored the table is set for the coming of the spirit and readers of acts are to understand that this pericope or unit not only is an explanation of how Judas was replaced but also a precedent for how to seek the Lord, even when we make decisions as a church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we have seen today uh, in this chapter. And we pray that we might see something of the reality of community that is filled with prayer and praise happen in our hearts, in our families, in our church, and in the church in the world. And we do pray, Lord, that we would be excited about this opportunity. Excitement generated by you, not whipped up by us, but an excitement to know that what most people are hoping in is never going to deliver, and that the only hope any of us have are what the eyewitness apostles pointed to. The death, Jesus died, took our sins upon himself, and suffered judgment and punishment on our behalf. Jesus' burial, that he took our sins down into death, that he was raised on the third day, triumphant over uh, sin and death, and ascended to the right hand where now he sits in session directing the affairs of his church. Father, we pray that we would see that develop in us more and more every day. 
And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.